0: Well, it is good to be here. I was, had to think when Ivan shared about uh, it being Palm Sunday, Remind reminded me of an observation that Leslie Newbigin made many years ago. And he said that the difference um, between Islam and Christianity is that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey to his death. And Muhammad rode into Mecca on the back of a war horse, bringing death. And that makes all the difference. Okay. All right. Um, uh, I, um, this morning, I'm going to uh, share with you about the church and its governing power. And uh, this is... Um, I was asked to do this one. So, um, my wife uh, asked me earlier this week, well, do you know what you're going to preach on? Have you? Where I said, yeah, I know what I'm going to preach on. Uh, I've, all, I've been asked to do something, so that's always nice. You know, when people talk about the church, they have different views about it. Uh, if you're a classic Protestant, uh you would say the church is where the word is rightly preached and the sacraments or the ordinances are rightly administered. Martin Luther said wherever that happens there you have church. Um, and you know if you are a pietist, uh, you say that the church is a place for encouragement. And um and that's its focus. Okay. Um, Some people talk about it being a hospital for sick souls. Um, Some see the church as a missionary society whose goal and purpose is to spread the gospel. And some see it as a social group, um, a friendship group, and so on. Um, Now, all those things are part and parcel. They're all there. Okay, they're all there. Um, certainly we want the word to be rightly preached, and we want the ordinances to be rightly administered. This should be a place where we come and are encouraged in our faith. And, you know, when somebody is spiritually unwell, it should be a hospital. It should be a place for healing. And it certainly should be about the task of preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel and it is certainly important that it be a place, a friendship, a social group, and so on. Those are all very important things. But these are functions. These are things that it does. That's not the essence of what we mean when we use the term church. Um, as you go through the Gospels and the letters, I find three terms three words, three Greek words that are referred to this gathered group of Christ um, that I think describe more accurately what the essence of the church is. And the first one is the term ecclesia. It's actually where we get the word church from. Church is kind of a, a, a... a form of it was, it's an English form of this term a Greek word ecclesia, in German it's Kirch, um, which again you can kind of hear that. Um, and that that word in applying itself to the church, uh, I mean uh, that word ecclesia uh, occurs around 114 times in the New Testament, and 106 of those times, it refers to the gathered body of believers, all right? The, another term that's often used is soma, and uh, soma is simply referring to a body. It's a physical thing, okay? It's something physical, something that exists in time and in space. In the New Testament, soma is most commonly used to refer to this flesh that we all carry with us. But it is also used to refer to Christ's body, his gathered body of of believers. It happened, used that way 27 times in the New Testament, primarily in Paul's writings. And then there's another term, koinonia, which sometimes can be understood as community. Most commonly, it is translated as fellowship, and some other translations, it's sometimes used, uh, translated as partnership. Um, if you, uh, have any Pennsylvania Dutch background, um, you may have grown up hearing about the geme Remember uh, talking about the geme uh, which comes from the high German Gemeinde, which has this idea of a community and our Anabaptist people. In the past, did not use the term in the German Kirk very much because they associated that with the Lutherans and the Catholics and so the, on. And they, they really used the term geme, or Gemeinde to talk about the community. And one can almost, uh, I think in English, sometimes we use the word congregation and it kind of has that connotation, though actually it is much more, that is much more closely. Associated in meaning with the term ecclesia, which is an assembly. Okay? The assembly. Uh, there's a church group that calls themselves the Assemblies of God. That's kind of a nice name. So it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I belong to an assembly of God, maybe with a little A and not with an, uh, a big A. Uh, I, in our town, we have. A little uh, church that has on the sign, "It's the Church of Christ." That's a nice name. I like that one too. Um, And then occasionally, and then further down the road, we have this thing called the Church of God. I like that one too. Those are all nice terms, you know. At home, we call ourselves Shippensburg Christian Fellowship. And I notice here you use the term fellowship. Well, that's the term that's connected to the idea of koinonia. A number of years ago, I heard a dear. Mennonite Bishop uh, preached a sermon on the church, and in the course of that sermon, he talked about, um, he, he sort of weighed in against uh, groups calling themselves fellowship, because he felt that was kind of too loose and everything like that, and you know, he just felt we should use the term church and so on, and I understood where he was coming from, but I listened to that, and I said, well, actually, fellowship is a very strong word. It's not at all a loose word because it's, what, it's the thing that binds it together. It's a very close relationship, a very countable relationship, and so on. Well, I'm not going to look at all three of these terms this morning, okay? That's actually three sermons, all right? So I'm only going to be looking at the first one, assembly, okay? Okay. Um, I did one time preach all three of these sermons at one setting. It took me an hour and a half, but I was told I was allowed to do it. It was down in Kentucky. I was there for a week of Bible school and it was so on. My two youngest boys were with me and they were fussing me all week about how long I was preaching and so on, and the one bishop there said, told those boys, now you be quiet and let your dad say what he's going to say. (laughs) That's what we have him here for. I promise to be done by 12. <laughs> okay? All right, let's look at assembly, ecclesia. It is, from what I understand, I don't read Greek, okay? I, I, um, I use uh, the... Uh, I have a really good dictionary, Greek dictionary that is... Um, and I also have a very good Hebrew dictionary that is, you know, has the uh, terms and so on, and, and I depend upon them a lot. But... Um, Um, Ecclesia is a compound word that means called out. And it's actually borrowed from the Greek uh, political uh, structures and and government. Uh, Greece was was originally, until they were taken over by the Roman Empire, was originally a collection of small city states. It means that there was a major city uh, and then the surrounding countryside. Athens, uh, Corinth, and so on. They were all originally Greek city um, states. And when the Roman Empire came in and took, took those over, one of the things the Roman Empire did is that they did not, they, uh, the areas that they took over, they did not supplant the local governments. They kept those intact. They allowed the local governments, the local customs, even the local laws, and so on, to continue on. All right. If you read in the in the New Testament, in the Gospels, about what's happening in in uh, Israel there with the with the Jewish government, so that was all intact. But over top of that, then you had this Roman superstructure, and the main thing that the Romans wanted was taxes. And as long as you kept paying your taxes, they would let you... And, you, and they wanted you to be... They didn't want any, ups, they didn't want any, any um, uh, uprising, any kind of contention or, or anything like that. So as long as the local governments could, could keep the taxes flowing and could keep everybody behaving, okay, so there wasn't any riots or anything like that, the Roman government was happy. So in Greece, you continue this idea of of these city-states, and these city-states had a government, and, it, and the assembly of the citizens was a major element of that government. And I'd like us to turn in our Bibles, there's an example of this in Acts 19. If you would turn your Bibles to Acts 19, there's an example of this where Paul is at Ephesus, and you remember this situation and so on. Uh, they, the uh, people uh, get upset, uh, particularly the people who make these little statues, silver statues. The silversmiths get upset because their livelihood is be, being threatened by Paul preaching the gospel and people becoming con- being converted and leaving the worship of Diana of Ephesus, the major goddess, uh, Greek goddess there that was worshipped in Ephesus. And the silversmiths made these little statues that people could buy and take home with them and back home when they went home and so on. And of course, uh, they're upset, and so they, they riot. So they do. Uh, starting in verse 29. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seen Gaius and Artarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him then some of the officials of Asia who were with his friends sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Someone therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why, why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with the hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out, for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus of the Ephesians is a temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and, on the, on, and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this dis. This orderly gathering, and when he had said these things, he had dis- he dismissed the assembly. Now you'll notice here the term assembly is used di- several times here. That is the word ecclesia. Okay, it's the same word that most other places in the in the uh, letter in the New Testament is translated as church. Okay, so we can see here in this in in uh, Ephesus, which is a city-state. And it has its own local government, and it has this group of... They come in uh, into the theater, which is an, as an amphitheater, probably an open-air open uh, place, um, and so on. And they're upset. They're rioting. This, this is disorderly. And they have the city clerk, who's a major official in the city, come and quiet them down. All right? And he says, this is a non. And earlier on it says a lot of people came in and they didn't even know why they were coming. Uh, they they picked up, hey, there's an assembly happening and we need to go. All right? Um, they're not even, some of them are not even sure why what's happening here. But the clerk comes onto the comes in, he intervenes, he quiets them down, and he reminds them that this is not a lawful assembly. Because a lawful assembly is something that was been called by the city officials, and all the citizens, all the male citizens, would have come into, the, into this theater, into this amphitheater, and the clerks would have uh, presented an issue to them, and they would have voted on it. And that, or they would have talked about it, and they would have voted on it. It was a discussion. And that's how the Greek city states made decisions. But there was, a, there was a way to do it, and the clerk was reminding them. This is not the way to do it. You don't come into the city here, you don't come into the amphitheater in an unlawful assembly and cause a great tumult. And in fact, he says, you know, we're going to get in trouble. The Romans hear about this, we're going to get in trouble. And so he's able to quiet them down and dismiss them and the, uh, dismiss the assembly. But it's a good example uh, in the scriptures uh, of describing this this, um, this. Greek form of government, and that term, assembly then, is used, and it's not only used by Paul, okay, it's used by the other apostles, but Jesus also uses it twice uh, in in the Gospels, and we'll be looking at that here, all right, but I want you to notice something about this political organization, okay, okay? It's a gathering of citizens. in this case, it's the men of Ephesus. The women did not have a, um, a say in this. In fact, I would just mention in relation to what was shared this morning um, actually, that was shared in Sunday school this morning. I so thought that was a good point is the, the Greeks had a really, na- I would say really nasty kind of view about women, to put it lightly. And you know, today in our society, there's a lot of uh, fuss and uh, so on about, you know, lo- you know, looking at the passages in Paul and so on, where it talks about women being submissive and so on, you know, seeing that as being a, being a big problem. But in reality, and even Jordan Peterson, I, I heard him say this. Now, maybe you're not Jordan Peterson fans. I'm not either, but he's interesting on occasion. Um, uh, he's, uh, he was being confronted by this by some radical sort of person. Uh, and he said, you're completely mistaken about that. Christianity is the, is the one religion that elevated the women. And I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind. All right. But you'll notice here that it's a body that comes together. And it's made up the citizens of, of the city. And not everybody in Ephesus were citizens. In fact, there were many slaves in the city of, of, of Ephesus. I, I would not hazard a guess as to whether or not the Jews living in Ephesus were citizens. They may not have been, I don't know for sure, but they may not have been, okay? So it's a deliberative body who comes together to make decisions for the city. It has, it has a role in how the city is governed. And of course, we have officials. Here's the city clerk who comes in, and he's, he's an executive person. He's an administrative person. Uh, in a sense, we might think of him as an overseer, okay? So, an ecclesia, in just its general sort of features, is a governing and deliberative body. It has select membership based on citizenship criteria and it has duly recognized <laughs> leaders. And I think all of that carries over. All those meanings carry over then into the New Testament writings when the when Jesus and the apostles talk about the church. Okay? So let's look and see what Jesus had to say about the church. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. Okay? Matthew chapter 16, verses, um, verse 18. Uh, now, this is in the context of uh, Jesus asking um, his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the, of the living God. And Jesus answers and said to him, Well, blessed art thou, Simon Bar Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom and of, of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, I just want to do a little bit of explaining here, okay? Uh, Jesus, of course, is, is uh, making a play on words here. He says, thou art Peter, okay? And that's a little stone, all right? And upon this rock okay, and there's a, little, there's, a, there's a stone and there's a rock, and we can understand the difference between a stone and a rock, okay, stone's small, a rock's big, all right, and what's the rock, okay, what's the rock? Well, it could be this confession that Peter makes, okay, upon this rock, upon the confession of uh, upon the confession that thou art the Christ the son of the living God that's going to be the foundation the basis of everything but i'd like to suggest to you by if you go back to if you go on to revelation i does mean that because, it does mean that it's upon this rock upon this confession of who jesus is but i just remind you that in revelation it talks about god's kingdom his church being built on the on christ and the apostles, and the apostles are these foundation stones, not rock, not not the big rock. Jesus is the cornerstone; he's the big rock, and these these apostles are foundation stones. Okay, and and uh, and here he says that what you, I think he's referring here not to Peter singularly, okay, not to Peter singularly, but to his disciples, okay? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Christ gives to his disciples, okay? He gives to his followers an authority, I think, together to bind and to loose, okay, to bind and loose. And we'll look at at that later on in chapter 18. We'll just look here a little bit at chapter 18. All right. So he has this authority to bind and to loose. Well let's just go look at, at uh, chapter 18, verse 18. OK And we'll be coming back to this later on, um, all, to chapter 18 later on, but I want to just point out one thing here about it. Um, and we're looking at verse 18. I'll have to look at 17 to give you the context of who he's talking about. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church, tell it to the ecclesia, tell it to the assembly. All right? And if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth, Will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. All right. Now, I want you to notice that he is talking here about the church. He's talking about the ecclesia, talking about this assembly. And he describes here the authority that the church has to make decisions. Now, it's in the context of dealing with an erring brother, okay, somebody who's not doing what they should, and the church addressing that. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later on here. But, but I, I just want to lay the ground here, groundwork here for us to understand that Christ has given to the church, to his gathered body, to his gathered assembly, the authority to make decisions about things, and and God will recognize that authority. Now, one of the things I should note here is that He is not giving us authority to annul what He has taught and what the apostles taught, okay? He's not giving that authority to them, okay? I think that what He's talking about here is in the course of in the course of working out what Jesus and the apostles taught, he gives the church the authority together to work that out and to decide how it's going to be worked out, okay? Um, You know, in our circles, and probably it's the same way here, you know, we live in a time in which there is a lot of questioning about our practices and so on. And, you know, in... My congregation, we have certain expectations about how we do things, how we dress, things we, where we go to, and so on. And sometimes there's some pushback against that. And people will say to, to me, will say to us sometimes, well, where do you find that in the Bible, particularly talking about a particular kind of dress and everything that we ask people to wear? And, well, certainly the Bible does not have any, uh, any dress patterns in, in the back of it. All right. There's nothing like that. Okay. There's nothing like that. Okay. But the question that I ask in return is: We do have teachings from the Scripture to um, that tell us that we are to dress modestly. We're dressed simply. We're to dress without ornamentation and so on. So that is a biblical command. And the question then has to be asked about what we do. Is it fulfilling the biblical command? If what we say as a congregation, this is how we want to dress, is it actually doing what the scripture says we're supposed to do? And if it does, then what we're doing is biblical. Now, it could be we could work it out a different way. Okay, well, I'm, the the application is not is not necessarily permanent. It's not necessarily always has to be a particular way or another one, but. If you look at how you're doing it, and it's doing what the Bible says, it's biblical. Okay? It's biblical. Um, it's, it's fitting within what we're told to do. And then we have to ask ourselves sometimes, is what we're doing doing what the Bible tells us to do? Okay? Because we might not. Okay? We might not. And uh, we had young, one young brother who, a uh, fine young brother, I loved him a lot. I wish he would still be around. But he had this, this, he said, you know, we're asking people to do things that aren't biblical. And, and I tried to talk with him. We had a conversation, it was a good conversation. He's a sweet person. And I asked, him, I asked him, I said, well, in the end, who gets to decide what our applications are? Is it you as an individual? Or is it the body, the gathered body that gets to work this out and we do it together? Well, he kind of reluctantly admitted that it probably should be the gathered body, all right? But he still wasn't content and and he left and like I said, he went elsewhere and he's doing fine and they're doing okay too. The thing that was so interesting to me is there wasn't that much difference between where he was with us and where he went to. Um, And I thought, my, was it that important to you to be able to do some of these little things That you left us and he admitted that we had done a lot of good for him Um, you know I I do sometimes think that we can have a cavalier attitude toward God's body toward the church Um, and you know I, I don't know how it is with you folks here but you know oftentimes the decisions that we make as a group, they're, 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 compromised situ- they're, they're compromised solutions, all right? Very, I mean, when you talk things out and you work things out, you hear different ideas and, you, and so on, and you come to a solution that, okay, we can live with. But it means that I very seldom ever get exactly everything I would like to have done in our church, But I know that some of the other brothers who see things a little bit differently, they don't get exactly everything done the way they would like to have it done. But we come together, we work this thing out, and we come to a compromise solution that we can live with and work with. Okay? And you know, sometimes people will say, well, that doesn't make sense. I thought, well, yes, it does make sense if you understand the process and the fact that this was a compromise. And we we were human beings, and we worked out this compromise, and so on. And plus, I'd always say, do you think everything you do makes sense? All right? It, It doesn't necessarily, but if you understand the process, you can understand the sense behind it. All right? So when Jesus talks about the authority... To buy for the church, the, the local congregation, the assembly, the believers to get together and make decisions, the binding and loosening. He's not talking about voting away scriptural teachings, things that the apostles, Jesus and the apostles taught. You know, you cannot vote away what Jesus said about divorce and remarriage. And uh, Simon and I and some of the older brothers here are old enough to remember when there were Mennonite churches that did that. They did that, and they had an argument for it. Their argument was love. It was love. You know, we want to deal redemptively with these situations. Um, and you know, today uh, we hear in circles where they want to accept people who are living in um, in same-sex relationships, and the argument for it is love. Okay? And so we can get away from, we can annul that, and, and, they, will, and they will process it through a whole thing with, with their congregations or their larger church structures and so on, and arrive at these decisions. That's not what Jesus and the apostles were talking about. Okay? We do not have the authority to annul what Jesus has said. Okay? We, don't have, we, have, we have to figure out what he says. Okay, and that's where the community comes in. And we have to apply what he says and so on. But we're not voting away scriptural teachings. We're applying scriptural teachings. And that has some variety and flexibility to it. Now, for an example of the church doing this, let's turn to Acts chapter 15. This is probably, um, probably a familiar passage for you. I want to uh, look at verses 1 through 30. um, And I'll just read it here. Certain men came down from Judea and taught taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way to the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when they had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledging them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of the mankind may seek the Lord even all the Gentiles who are called by My name, saying, The Lord who does all these things. knowing, Known to God from eternity are all His works, therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from things strangled, and from blood. For, this, for Moses has throughout many generations those who preach Him in every city. being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men out of their own company to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas teaching men among the brethren. And the rest of the passage has the letter that they sent. But I want you to notice something here. Okay? The, The thing that They're facing here is what is the criteria for membership in God's ecclesia and His community, and so there was a group of Jewish Christians who were saying they need to follow the law of Moses to be saved, all right, and some are saying they need to be they need to be circumcised, okay, and so this is the this is the question that's before them, and. the question, they had: is that what Gentile Christians have to do, that they have to be circumcised? Do they have to follow all the laws of Moses? All right. And you'll notice here that the apostles and the elders, and later on in, in the end of thing, we get the thing, we get the understanding that the whole church was gathered there in an assembly, okay, in an ecclesia. They were gathered together. And I want you to notice how this whole thing was, was done. First of all, the recognized leaders, the apostles, stood up, and they kind of framed the question. They framed what they were, spo- what they were supposed to do, and then they gave, they gave a rationale. Peter speaks from what God had already shown him with Cornelius, all right? And he clearly says, it's not keeping the law of Moses, because our forefathers tried that, and it was a burden to them. Okay, it was a burden to them. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. The Gentiles and the Jews come into the kingdom of God, into the Ecclesia, the same way. It's through trusting and believing in Jesus and what he's done for us. Okay? Now, I want you to notice something else that happens here. All right? They had a dispute. All right, it says much dispute. I think some translations will also must say a fierce dispute. Okay, you you ever have fierce disputes here? We've had fierce disputes back home, I can tell you. Sometimes I regret them, and I will not have, I will have to admit with somewhat shame that I have participated in fierce disputes. I've been trying in recent years not to, um, but not eliminating disputes, but making sure they're not fierce. All right. So, Peter, who is a recognized leader here, gets up, and he reminds them of what God has been doing. All right? And he reminds them as to what is the foundational thing. We are saved by the grace of Christ. That's how we come into the kingdom. All right? Then, notice here it says that all the multitude kept silent. They listened. One of the things I think is problematic for any of us is that when we feel strongly about something, we don't tend to listen to what the other person is saying. Okay? But they kept... So- and, you know, if, if you interrupt... And I'm a bad interrupter. My wife will tell me, you interrupted. And I have to really work at not interrupting. And I'm not always successful. But... Um, Because I will just tell you quite frankly, when somebody's talking and I disagree with them, everything's going through my mind as to why they're mistaken and so on, and I want to tell them that. But I think it's very important here that they were quiet and they listened to what Barnabas and Paul had to say. And so after they listened to what Barnabas and Paul had to say, James stood up, and James laid the scriptural foundation. And that's the other thing I think we really have to keep in mind when we are gathering together as a body to make decisions. What is the scriptural foundation of of this decision? Now, you know, if you're talking about what to paint the walls, that's, you know. But, you know, I'm amazed how people have such strong opinions about that. In fact, I will tell you quite frankly, when we're talking about doing something to the meeting house, now, mind you, I don't want any stained glass windows, uh, but (laughs) when we're talking about that, I think, you know, we have these trustees, just let them take care of it. I trust that they will paint the walls a decent color. Though I will have to admit that recently they painted a bathroom wall I thought was sort of an ugly, dark color. (laughs) But I'm not going to make an issue of it. You know, somebody else liked that color. But I think when we, make, when, we, when we are working through a, a question which we have to make the decision, we have to do what James did here, where he laid the scriptural uh, foundation for the decision. And he quotes from the Old Testament about, about um, rebuilding the tabernacle of David, about the Gentiles being brought in. And, and he, he, he says, this is what's prophesied. We're living in the day of fulfilled prophecy here. Okay? And he said, but at the same time, we know that Moses is read throughout the Roman world because there were Jews gathered throughout the Roman world. They're, they're read in synagogues and so on. And we're going to ask the Gentiles to do three simple things, okay, out of respect for the, for the Jews. Now, this is interesting because, in a sense, they're asking the Gentiles. Now, some of this is just, just you know, basic basic rightness. Abstaining from sexual immorality is a given, and and so on, all right? But he asked them not to to abstain from things polluted by idols, from things polluted by, from sexual immorality, and from the things strangled and from blood, all right? Now, these are actually, uh, it's interesting if you go to Revelation. One of the things that one that some of the churches are, cry, are criticized for is that they eat things that are strangled for blood. That's coming back here to Acts. And so it seems to be a continued ordinance. And so from if I understand in the early church and the other centuries, eating blood, you know, eating things that were strangled was not something the early Christians did. All right? And then we talk about polluted by idols. You know, Paul has a whole discussion in 1 Corinthians about that. And I think many people misunderstand his development there, but the, the thing that you have to keep in mind about whether or not you can go to a temple and sit down and eat before an idol, you have to keep in mind that Paul ends that discussion by saying, flee idolatry. Don't have anything to do with it. You cannot sit at the table of demons and the table of Jesus, of Christ. And so we see that being carried out here also. All right. So... James suggests a solution, he, he, he lays the biblical foundation, he suggests a solution, and then notice in verse 22, then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own, okay? The apostles, the elders, the whole ecclesia, the whole assembly was involved in this process, leadership is important because leadership has the responsibility to help the congregation work through the decision making process okay but leadership leadership works from a position of strength when they after they have worked through that process and they're not just simply speaking for themselves they're speaking for the whole congregation all right and, you know, so if you have if you have people who are being disobedient and aren't wanting to work with the things that you decide and so on, it should be that your leaders, when they go and talk to them initially, that they go with not their personal authority, but the authority of the church who has said, this is what we want to do and this is what we expect. All right? And I think we see that happening here. This wasn't just the the apostles and the elders, but it was the whole ecclesia who was involved in the decision-making process (laughs) and the apostles and the elders had the support of the whole church. A number of years ago, I read a book by Gary Wills. It was on leadership and the point that he made in that book was leaders aren't leaders if they don't have followers. (sighs) Now that would seem to be a pretty simple thing to understand but leaders have to have people who are willing to follow them one of the things that does sadden me and again i think this is sort of a sign of time is the breakdown in many churches between leadership and the congregation and we should work really really hard to make sure that doesn't happen but i think it works best when the congregation is is an integral part of the decision-making process The leadership has helped them to come to a solution that everybody can work with and agree to. And that, as Jesus tells us, he recognizes that authority. It's bound here on earth. Now, it's 12 o'clock, so I'm not going to talk about church discipline. All right? Uh, I'm going to stop there, and I'll uh, close. Thank you very much.